Hello, and welcome back to Stern Chats, a podcast that explores the untold stories of the NYU Stern community. My name is Cameron, and my co-host today is Uni. Today, we have the opportunity to interview Stern alum, Laura Fox. Laura Fox is the co-founder and managing partner of Street Life Ventures, as well as an adjunct professor at Stern Teaching Strategy. Laura graduated from Stern in 2015 and in her career worked at BCG as well as City Bike. Laura, welcome to Stern Chats. Thank you so much for being a guest on Stern Chats today. Um, we're both excited to have you join this episode. Laura, um, could you just start by introducing yourself and maybe telling us your favorite place in New York City since you've lived here for so long? Sure. My name is Laura Fox. I'm the co-founder and managing partner of Street Life Ventures. We're a venture capital firm that invests at the intersection of cities and climate. And we can talk a little bit more about that later. But I have a very tough time picking my favorite place in New York because there's so many, which is maybe one of the things I love about New York. Uh, I love taking amazing bike rides down to Brighton Beach. I love Governor's Island for a relaxing day. I love going to so many different museums. Uh, hot tip on the Jew Chicago show right now at the new museum, which I think is really great. The, uh, to Jackson Heights for Dosa. So I, I just, one of the things I love about New York is it can feel as if you're consistently traveling while living in the same city, which I just think is incredible. Yeah, I feel like going to every borough feels like traveling a little bit because you get to see a new, completely different environment and neighborhood. I have a friend who recently moved to Jackson Heights and like that's quite different than where I live. Yes. Um, Commit yourself to the new foods. Yeah, yeah. I love Jackson Heights and Elmhurst. Yeah, <laughs> it's a really great neighborhood. Yeah. So, Laura, we're really excited to get into your background and like how you've gotten to where you are now, investing at the intersection of climate and cities. But first, we wanted to start from your beginnings at Stern. So, what led you to pursue an MBA from Stern in the first place? Yeah, you know, I've been focused on how you improve quality of life in cities since the beginning of my career. But prior to business school, that focus had been on the effects that cultural organizations have on cities and communities, both economically and socially. I wrote a lot about that outside of my day job while living in Chicago, was on the board of a couple small museums, but that led me to move to Qatar when I was 24 to work for their museum. So I was living in the capital of Qatar in Doha and working on a whole range of different cultural projects for Doha as a city and then Qatar as a country. And I think that experience is really transformational for me personally in a lot of different ways, but especially professionally, in that I'm walking around the streets of Qatar and there's no sidewalks, there's not great kind of public transportation, affordable housing. You know, most of the country's water is done through desalination plants. And so we would have some water issues, food issues. And realized for me at that point that I wanted to move down what I'll call Maslow's hierarchy of needs when it comes to how I wanted to impact urban life and start focusing on some of these harder assets that really affect a lot of the day-to-day. So ranging from transportation to buildings and housing to climate and sustainability and a number of other areas. And in parallel to that exploration of what I was really interested in and passionate about from the subject matter aside, you know, functionally, the roles I was doing prior to business school were in more kind of growth marketing, kind of product-related spaces that were much further down the decision chain. And I realized that I had a lot of issues sometimes with the decisions that were handed to me. (laughs) And I was told to go make them work and generate revenue or bring in visitors to the museum or customers or really think about experience in a particular way. And I wanted to have more experience and expertise in setting strategy, setting the financials, and really having to say about what we were actually doing. And so 
I think coming to NYU for business school kind of fulfilled both of those for me. At the time, NYU had an urbanization project embedded in the business school. So I really was able to focus on the city side there. And NYU is really known for the finance and strategy skill set that it brings to the table too. Yeah, I do really appreciate how Stern, like you can build a lot of different skill sets in Stern. Any part of why I also chose to come to Stern is I didn't understand why I was in consulting prior, why my clients were making the decisions that they were making. And while I still didn't agree with the decisions some of my clients made, I had a more understanding about the financial piece of where you do need to get a certain level of return for your investment piece. And like even have it, like you can't just do something that makes revenue in the short term. And so that part was really, has been really interesting to think about over the last three semesters that I've been here. Yeah. What are you optimizing? How do you optimize short term for a longer term strategy? How do you set longer term strategy, knowing what you need to accomplish over the next year or two? Yeah, I think that those are all really important things to toggle on how you think about long term business drivers, that intersection of new business, new customer, <laughs> where in that matrix you want to play. <laughs> I think that's a really yeah. wonderful reason for coming to Stern. I Sorry, just like a quick follow on only before we move into the post Stern. During your time at Stern, you were looking for that understanding into the thought process that goes into the strategy decision-making, were there any courses or experiences at Stern or you talked about at the time there's an urbanization project, were there any things at Stern that you felt like really helped you get to where you wanted to be afterwards? Yes, uh, so many. <laughs> I was luckily enough to take my intro to strategy class with Sonia Marciano. And then I TA'd for Sonia for probably two classes a semester the rest of my time at Stern. She then recruited me back a couple of years after to start teaching an MBA strategy class. I taught that the last five years or so. And so I really enjoyed that. So that was foundational for me. I really love how Sunny slash Professor Marciano frames and reframes industry dynamics and industry problems and how to think about that. I was also intensive financial modeling was really new to me. So Dan Godet teaches an incredible financial modeling class that I loved and I thought was at times could feel painstaking during the course of the semester, but I think really made tangible what I was learning in finance, what I was learning in accounting and how to really apply that in the real world. And they're the skills that I used every day as a PL mm-hmm. owner after CERN. I also took a number of deep data analytics classes. So using stuff like R and Python and Tableau and others, and have just found those to be incredibly foundational. And then things like Donnie Chuck's negotiation class, really thinking about that now <laughs> and framing how I'm thinking about particular issues. You guys are both laughing. I'm hoping that you've taken it. She's in fact, not but if Cameron was recommending and I will be yeah. taking it next semester. Did you have that professor, Cameron, or did you have someone else? I think Dolly on right now is taking a leave of absence. I took it with Stephen Blader, who's fantastic. It was a really, I found it like a, there's a phrase, maybe we can cut this out, but it was like a come to Jesus moment for me where I realized, oh no, I'm a horrible negotiator. And it was really helpful. I think for me long-term. Yeah. But yeah. And for me, outside of the coursework, Stern has these signature projects, which were really just starting when I was there and have really expanded. And I worked on a number of projects with urbanization projects internationally, got to go in country with them, worked on a project that was urban plus park strategy in the UAE with the World Wildlife Fund. Again, got to be on the ground. Did another project in Vietnam, which is incredible. And also got a fellowship post Stern to go work in China for three months, working on kind of urban innovation topics. 
And so what I really loved about Stern is outside of the classroom, the types and levels of experiential learning that allowed me to really apply those, I found to be outstanding and the ways that really allowed me to hone the skills that I was getting in the classroom in a real world environment. That's, yeah. And the other class that you mentioned that I we I think both Cameron and I both took Marciano together at different times were her intro strategy class for the first semester. And she is great about reframing companies. I, for example, the paint company, Sherman Williams, I would have never thought that they were innovative and they're apparently super cool. will not look at paint ever again the same way. Yeah. I had a classmate who left vowing that he would run a paint company one day. He has not yet because the margins in paint are also really great. <laughs> I don't care. It's boring. <laughs> Everybody needs to be in the room, in the bedroom at some point. After Stern, after you collected all these great experiences and really built your skills, I saw that you moved into BCG as working as a consultant. Did you envision that would be your next step? And how did you think about BCG as like a launching pad to what you want to do next? Yeah. Funny enough, I met a couple. I hadn't really known about consulting earlier in my career. I, I met a BCG team when I was working in Qatar and they were working on a project for the museums. And I really appreciated the skill set that they brought to the table. And so I came in to start thinking, wow, that could be a great set of skills to continue to build to frame forward in my career, you know, knowing that I launched or wanted to make this impact on cities and climate. So when I was at BCG, I worked on a whole range of different projects from strategy projects for large tech companies and even modern art museums to building new mobility projects and products with BCG's digital ventures team and launching them and thinking about how you build an innovation pipeline, how you build an investment strategy with both the Digital Ventures Group, but also organizations like Big Urban Philanthropies who are making a lot of investments in cities. And so I think outside of the core strategy, financial kind of advisory skill set that you get from consulting, a big one for me that's a takeaway is I felt like I gained a lot of confidence in core problem solving skills. That no matter how big, nasty, complicated, the problem was that I could figure it out and break it down in a way that felt approachable and I could coach a team in doing that. And I think that for me has been a great anchor throughout the rest of my career as well. But didn't go into consulting thinking I would be in there forever, but knew that I wanted to gain that skill set to make an impact later. Fantastic. That's a great reason to go into consulting, which is is funny because I'm wondering, oh, maybe I should have thought about that when I was coming here. (laughs) Something that I saw on your in, in your resume that I thought was really interesting is while you're at VCG, you weren't just working for VCG, you were also starting off on your own projects. And one of them was the Conversation Lab. What was it like building out your own, maybe not exactly a side hustle, but having your own side project while you're working there? I'm imagining working 60, 70 hour weeks and also doing something beyond that. Yeah, I love side projects. I find them to be very invigorating. <laughs> I don't know. And so that was the second one that I did when I was at BCG. The first one, I edited a book for a mentor that I made at NYU who had advised a number of my urbanization projects that was, it was a book focused on cities and kind of economics of cities and how to think about them from a market-driven and entrepreneurial-driven approach. That was really fun, but different, right? Because that's more of a structurally how you're thinking about these topics, very analytical. And the conversation lab uh, came up because myself, my husband, and one of our best friends, all three of whom went to NYU Stern at some point in our (laughs) lives, (laughs) were sitting around and talking about something that felt very top of mind back in, you know, 
2017 as a moment of feeling like we were seeing friends and catching up with people, but that it could feel at time surface level, even with people who were good friends and family. And wouldn't it be nice to have a way to go deeper in those kinds of conversations and, and have better and stronger relationships ongoing with those that we we're closest with? And so it started out just as a, a fun project. Honestly, we made up a set of cards that we brought on a trip to Amsterdam, where there were probably eight or 10 of us. And each of those cards just had questions that took us deeper. And we learned a lot from that experience because we had structured them by topic area, but the questions leveled in complexity and depth. And so at the beginning, people were really excited to take them out and wanted, wanted to keep playing much more so than we expected. Uh, but what sometimes if we had just gotten to the place where we we're going to have dinner or the bar and you've got what I'll call like a level 10 question that's going really deep, you're like, ooh, that's a little too <laughs> early. <laughs> I don't know if I feel comfortable. But then all of the other questions, you've got a lighter question and you could warm up and then you could get to that level 10, maybe an hour later, the conversation could really flow. And so we thought, wow, that was actually a really incredible way to get these people that we're already close friends with getting to know them better. Why don't we take it back to New York and set up a series of dinner parties and just keep testing this as ethnographic mm. research? Right in a great chance to catch up with a whole group of friends and groups of friends that other people had coordinated too. Also, a great excuse to post. <laughs> yes, yeah, exactly. And have fun, make your side hustle and side project fun for you. <laughs> yeah, and so we restructured them into three different levels. Really looked at what kinds of questions allowed people to feel like they were having a real and authentic conversation versus having a conversation where they thought that someone needed to give them a certain question or that you needed to compete to be smarter. Like, for example, one question that might come up that makes people feel like they need to compete to be smarter is like, if you could invite one person throughout history to like a dinner party, who do you invite? And that's less you being authentic and more you being like, who is nation now versus other questions about your childhood or something that's much more authentic to you or if you had a night free to do anything that you wanted, how would you spend it? Like those are actually really interesting ways to get to know someone personally and how they choose to spend their time and, and other depths and complexities of them. And so it was a fun project. So we ended up saying, okay, there is actually something really interesting here. Let's actually go and make this a product. And as part of that, it's you have to figure out who's going to manufacture your cards. <laughs> how do you figure out supply chain? What's the marketing of that? Who are some of the partners that you might want? And it was actually just a really fun project to have complete control over and learn a lot while doing. And we ended up selling out of all of our cards three times, which was really fun and doing lots of fun projects from big kind of bundled retailers and hotels to organizations that were working really deeply with folks who had breast cancer and were looking to develop a set of questions to get have deeper conversations between caretakers and others. And so it was a really kind of fun experience to run. And the three of us all had day jobs. And maybe if we hadn't, we would have taken it further, but that ramped up for all of us. So eventually we're like, this is great. We've sold out three times, triple our money. <laughs> now it's like, <laughs> let's give that back in dinner parties to friends and create a legal and shared for that. And take it from there. That's amazing. Had you worked with your husband like in a professional setting? Or is this a solo side hustle? Had you worked with him as, I don't know, worked with someone and the relationship is like a little different? Yeah, we work really well together. I think that we both hope that there's a world in which we can do even more things together. But we are each other's, I don't know, professional thought partners. We both like writing short stories. So I love giving each other feedback on that. He is now, was more of a, in the business world now, is doing animated short films, like 
have really coached each other and big career transitions. Um, yeah. So it's, I, I think that he's an awesome partner and I think maybe it doesn't work for some people, but it has worked great for us over the years. Okay. That was aspiration. Thank you. I think the uh, other piece that we want to talk to you is like dive deeper into is around cities and mobility because that's your core. Cameron and I had worked on a project together over the spring that was focused on a case competition for Nissan that was hosted by a different business school that was about improving accessibility and sustainability and mobility. A lot of rhyming. But we got a chance to talk to some very cool people during that experience and during design thinking. So we talked to a few professionals in the MTA. We talked to someone who now works for Amazon. We had talked to some professors who are experts in the space. They, they, just, they made us look at the city in a very different light. And one yeah. was around like, how do other people who are maybe visually impaired look around and trans- mm-hmm. commute in the city? And then even like looking at ferries and potentially like different changes could you make to ferries, which was fascinating. Just love to hear about what you're excited about in trends and cities and like what you, because you've also had a global experience with Doha and China and then the United States on what you're excited about, like in the trends and city mobilities over the time that you've been working on. Yeah, so many things to explore and I would love to hear some of your findings from that project too. <laughs> I think for me, I've always been really interested in, you know, for cities, how do we both allow cities to be the most efficient when we think about transportation and then and and efficient for the city and efficient for the individual who's taking a form of transportation and cost effective. And then how do we reduce emissions while doing that? And oftentimes that can mean right going beyond kind of a bigger vehicle like a car or a truck or something like that. And I've just found over the course of my career that, um, you know, we need, in order to do that, we need more infrastructure investment, um, more, you know, fundamental reimagining, right, of the status quo and more incentives to change behavior. Um, I think one of the things that I certainly have struggled with, and I know others have in this space too, is having a common framework and language to talk about some of these changes. It resonates with investors, startups, government, and all these other stakeholders. Because I think one of the things you probably heard when you're having those transportation conversations is there's a lot more people in the room than when you're selling, I don't know, yogurt, <laughs> right? Or a consumer packaged good. And so how to, how to bring folks around the table around some of these ideas is really important. And so a mental model that I've long used over the years to help me kind of talk about this is one I call the, the more framework which is basically just a a couple different layers of that kind of starting from the side of it (laughs) to think about how we can talk about mobility interventions in a way that allows us to think about the urban context in particular. So, and I can give a couple of startup examples um, after we get through it too. So like on the enable side, we need things that allow governments, businesses, and individuals to, you know, assess plan measure essentially for mobility interventions uh, so that could be congestion reduction, climate mitigation, and reduction in other areas. R is for rebuild. This is very much true in a developed market context, right? We're not necessarily doing tons of that new build, but we have existing infrastructure that we need to convert or use in different ways. And 75% of the urban infrastructure needed by 2050 doesn't exist today. So there's a lot of opportunity to make changes. And that can be physical layer or could be something like a digital layer in terms of like how you manage your streets with the digital layer versus what are the materials that you're using that go into the street? How do you configure them? Would be the physical side. The offer side of this and the O is 
the things that we're much more comfortable with, what it is that you're using, what's the solution that you take as an individual or that you used to get goods and services around. So your transit, <laughs> like when you were talking to the MTA, microtransit, delivery, pedestrian tech, pedestrian access, micromobility, lightweight vehicles, a whole range of different things. And then M for me is maintain. And as you can imagine from having run city bike for a number of years, I think maintenance and operation can be totally sexy and is a really <laughs> essential thing to make sure that people have great experiences and to make something work functionally. And I think it's something that's oftentimes overlooked in this space and really essential to delivering a great mobility service and basically from plan to implementation, actually making sure that we're getting the reductions that we that you want. And so there's a ton of different startups working in this space on the mobility side and a lot of really interesting government scenarios too. So maybe we'll start by talking about the startup side and we can talk about the government side either now or later. But on the startup side, like when you think about that enablement layer, it's like how do people at the end of the day make decisions and how do they use existing infrastructure to get that information? And there's startups like Climate View that work with cities to help them understand the baseline of their emissions, kinds of interventions that they could put in place, how they measure that, and then tracking that ongoing to groups like Flow Labs that are working with government to help them understand how the streets are being used and how to better optimize them to reduce emissions, reduce congestion, things like that. And the rebuild side, I think that there's a lot of non-obvious, interesting steps to think about from a, how do we better use the infrastructure that we have today? So one startup to call out there is Volt Post, which retrofits lamp posts as EV chargers, right? So it doesn't add that new infrastructure, but upgrades existing infrastructure um, and things like that. How do we add more options for folks to do things like bike parking, like what Uni does to more digital streets management tools that, that can plug onto the front of a bus and actually manage how bus lanes are being used, pedestrian lanes, bike lanes, and things like that for infrastructure that you put in place like Hayden AI, I think is great. And then on the offer side, I'm, I'm really interested, um, you know, we talked, we talked a little bit about personal mobility and I mentioned that earlier, but also goods, right. And how goods are moved about, what are the physical vehicles for doing that and decarbonizing last mile transportation. So there's a great startup in the UK called Hived, um, that does both middle mile and last mile and uses electric vehicles, micro mobility, et cetera, and it's urban consolidation centers, which are a big topic in this space and how do you make those viable. Yeah. And on the maintenance side, there's stuff that talks about physical service all the way to grid management, which I think is a really big topic when we're thinking about, quote unquote, electrifying everything. <laughs> right. It's like, where does that energy come from? What are the resources to use? And companies that provide grid management software can be really interesting and control and a number of others in that space. So it's just like a couple to like think about, but it's, I think, being able to break down the mobility space and think about how this works in dense, complicated urban environments like cities is really important to having a really robust conversation. Well, yeah, that covers so much ground and that's so much, it really sticks into my thoughts. I really loved the one you were talking about with the rebuild site startup that is able to retrofit streetlights into being able to electric chargers. Combined with the grid management software, it seems like it'd be so helpful. Like that was something that came up in our conversations with city experts was when New York, like right now, Amazon's brought the Rivian trucks to New York. And what's interesting about that is they're all electric, which is wonderful, but it's the New York City grid is capped out as it is currently. And so being able to add in all these new electric vehicles that are now going to be needing to charge all the time was this big logistical challenge for Amazon and how to fit that in and take advantage of the grid, but not overload it. And that yeah. combination of having more options to charge, but also being able to manage the grid more effectively is a thing to think about. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. It's really important. I mean, a stat that blows my mind every time I think about it is if we were to go from gas powered cars to electric cars tomorrow, that would require $130 billion in grid infrastructure upgrades. <laughs> just for cars alone to make that transition. And so the kind of investment in thinking about what are alternative modes, like could Amazon actually be doing a lot of this on light electric vehicles and other modes that are proven to be more efficient on city streets? Could they be using the waterway, right, in a city like New York? And lots of cities are on complicated waterways to take things from places like Hunts Point and the Bronx down to lower Manhattan. Like it's actually a lot more efficient than driving a truck. Um, and so there's a lot of really interesting ways to rethink some of this when we think about some of those constraints in place. And if we have the right incentives, like right now, this is a hyper New York example, but in New York, the city prevents someone from having a trailer on an, an e-bike be more than three feet, which essentially, and they did not allow until recently something that was pedal assisted, but four wheels, which is really important for stability in the logistics side into a bike lane, even though they have to the same speed limit. And so there's just a lot of kind of core kind of policy things to work through when we think about helping enable more of these sustainable solutions to be rolled out. Yeah. I don't know if this has gone too wonky no, in like city government. No, I'm happy to just processing. <laughs> yeah. The amount of like money that would be required to for change all these, the cars of $3 million is a little mind blowing. Some of the small things that came up when we were doing interviews was just like, Things and I'm not a parent, and so we end up focusing on parent user group. And New York City was just rolling out, be able to have strollers on buses and like having a specific space for that. And it was like a pilot program, and it's something I hadn't thought about. And most there are a lot of people who are parents in the city who are trying to navigate and just like thinking about like the amount of change that we need to do to decarbonize while at the same time fixing the things that we haven't taken care of as a city in terms of like parents or I didn't do this interview but Cameron you interviewed a professor about just like the amount of noise and like trying to navigate the subway right yeah yes he was able to compare and contrast like the New York City subway versus the London subway and he thinks of the New York City subway as like ultimately for people with all their faculties is a significantly more efficient subway system but the London subway is significantly more accessible and they have their pros and cons but you talked about in the London subway, just simple things like just having it be well lit. It makes it so much easier for him to navigate a train. There's a, the newest trains that they're rolling out. We have them on the A line. Sometimes I get to see them where inside the train, it's much brighter. And then they, on the ground around the doors, they have changed the color of sort of the on and off areas on the floor. And so when he's looking down, like it's like dark blue and then bright yellow around the door. So he can more clearly see where the door entrances are and are not. And even light up the doors when they open and close, which is like all these little cues for someone. We think about someone as being like maybe blind or like full sighted, but maybe there's like this whole range of sighted capabilities where just like making it really visible is hugely helpful to a huge number of people. And I would like open my eyes. I was like, oh, I didn't even think about that. Yeah. Yeah. There's a whole range of like pedestrian assistive tech, which is a not often thought about space within mobility. And those for folks with uh, visual impairment are really important um, area too. Yeah, even the change that they made where they put this, where the location of the digital stops was, where it indicates like one stop away is X and then two stops away is Broadway Lafayette. That used to be where people were sitting and now they moved it over a door, which my parents, when they came to visit, found it so much more useful because they immediately were like, oh, we're on the right train. And I was like, oh, how do you know that? Because normally I know 
and they essentially like follows and not use the city. But even that small change was so useful for them to be like, oh, I immediately know as a tourist, I'm on the right train. This is where the stop and just like making people's lives like in those small ways also easier. Um, yeah, it's very cool. And because I also want to live in the city for the rest of my life. I had that realization after undergrad. And it was like, I would like to be in a, I, something about the density and like being able to see all the cultures and neighborhoods that we had talked about earlier is really nice. And so like having also the city change in ways that could also make life easier for all of us residents would be really great. Yeah, totally agree. Is there one change that you really want to see New York City implement in the next 10 years? I have two big pain points right now, so maybe I'll speak to them. One is New York needs to do a major rezoning right now. And that sounds boring, but it, it affects all of us in that the average one-bedroom rental price in Manhattan right now is $4,000, which is crazy. I'm sure you guys are experiencing that pain point. Yeah. Experience. <laughs> and I think that we are a city in crisis mode at the moment. And one of the things that blocks us from building new housing and having developers build new housing is that we have all of these kind of overlapping regulations, but the most restrictive of them is related to floor area ratio. And New York City basically has a limit of 12 um, that you can't build above. And so it means that even a lot of dense apartment buildings, like think of the dense apartment blocks that sit along um, the west side of Central Park. <laughs> Those actually wouldn't be allowed given the zoning code that we have today in New York City. Or if you think about, there's a whole conversation about, there's a lot, return to work in quotes, <laughs> right? There's a whole different approach to how we think about work, which means that there's a lot of vacant commercial real estate. And there's been a conversation about how we convert those to residential, but without allowing and making a zoning change, people literally can't make the math work. <laughs> Because you could maybe convert half the building or a quarter of the building, but what are you going to do with the rest? And so there's a lot, but there's a lot of things that we could do to increase housing that would really reduce how much individuals pay for it. Not to mention like capitally affordable um, housing, but it's getting, it has been crazy and it's getting even more crazy when we look at just like overall market. Is this so a city issue that needs to change or is it a statewide? Great question. It is the nexus of the two, which is why it's difficult. It's and like so the air train. Yeah, exactly. It's one of those issues, which makes it a challenging one. I think that we have a great governor right now in these issues, a very complicated state legislator, legislative group, and oftentimes complicated, very local issues in the city itself. Mm -hmm. But I think that we're in an emergency zone and we should call an executive order and make a big change, personally. Personal opinion. And and second, I'll just put in my second one I would love to see is congestion pricing has been discussed for 10 plus years now. I think we're getting closer and closer to implementation. But New York City, we are talking about congestion a little bit earlier. New York City loses over $30 billion a year to lost wages from congestion of just people literally sitting in traffic. I think the average speed in Fidei is something like three miles an hour during rush hours still. And some cities have been really successful at implementing this. London implementing something called an ultra low emission zone called a U-Lens, another piece of activity in this world. But that led to something like 80% of people changing modes. The city invested in a ton of bus and bike lanes. And now something like 40% of people at peak commute periods get to work on micromobility device, typically a bike. And the other 40% are on public transit. And so it's really just led to a big change and shift in the city. 
And I think it's something that New York with the density that we have could easily replicate because today, just to give also another staggering stat on how streets are used, uh, less than 1% of street spaces today in New York are dedicated to dedicated uh, bus or bike lanes. And so that's crazy when you think about how much real estate in the city is used by streets. Yeah, the amount of cars that are parked on the street near me that just cause congestion. So I live on like a, in Brooklyn, like near Atlantic and ends up being a really major corridor and both sides have parking on it. So it turns into a one lane load that is just a nightmare to be around during traffic hours. Yeah, there's three million three parking spaces in New York. I won't go down this rabbit hole. It's pretty deep. <laughs> <but> it's, <laughs> we have enough 14 central parks. We've got a lot of parking and then free parking in the city. Yeah, I just like on that same vein, like it's interesting to see those statistics about how the city's being used and like where we are now and where we could be someday. Like I remember as part of our project, I was looking up like how many of the train stations are accessible today. And it's exciting by 20, I think it's by 2050, we'll have 90% of our train stations will be accessible. I guess things just take time. Yeah. When you and I were at an event yesterday where this was discussed, because I think the 2050 goals are great, but how do we set short-term goals that are achievable and then hold ourselves to short-term goals, right? So a big discussion in climate right now is net zero and by which date versus can you reasonably within three years reduce emissions by 15%? And how do you actually get there to see 15% and develop like a, a pathway to reaching that? And I think similar for the, these big infrastructure projects, it's really great to have big long-term goals and ambitions So, like how do we hold ourselves accountable in the short term is a big question that I typically ask and I'm always interested in having a conversation around related to some of these bigger goals. Yeah, that's a really good point. Like the 2050 goals, I didn't think about it, but I realized, oh, there's so many things that are saying by 2050, we'll have this. And it's maybe I should just be a cryogenically frozen and then they can unthaw me in 2050 when the world's a perfect place. That'd be a risky bet. We promised everything and nothing is delivered because we have no short term goals. So I, I was really excited for you to talk about some of the startups that have been in, intriguing you and the different areas that they are focusing on. And I'd love for you to tell us more about Street Life Ventures specifically, like how did you come to start it? How did you decide to step out and form your own venture firm? Yeah, yeah. Maybe first a little bit on Street Life Ventures. Our basically high level, our thesis is majority of the world lives in cities. Seventy <laughs> percent of emissions come from cities. So if we're going to solve the climate crisis, it's going to need to be done in urban areas. Um, it's also one of the largest kind of economic opportunities of our generation, right, to transition these industries. There's something like $3 trillion in financial commitments that are sitting on the sidelines today because they say that they don't have investable projects. We need $5 trillion a year to make that net zero uh, transition. And so really a lot of work to be done. And so we focus on pre-seed, seed stage companies that are B2B, so they sell to other businesses within five different sectors, you know, building and logistics, buildings, energy, waste and water, and then adaptive infrastructure. And I, I would say starting this felt like the thing that I had to do. <laughs> it's always hard and difficult to do your own thing. You're stepping off of the ledge of, you know, doing something that's meaningful for you in a, in a different way. And, and I think venture capital is one of the last remaining, I would say, cottage industries, as I've heard other people call it. There are just things true about the industry that would be deeply unacceptable anywhere else. <laughs> one example of those things is diversity. Less than 1.4% of the total assets invested into venture capital, which gets something like 
84 billion in assets under management goes to general partners. So people that manage the funds who are diverse in any way that could be gender, could be race, that could be sexual orientation, any means and definition of diversity. And so it's really an industry that lacks diversity and neither my co-founder or I come from money originally. And so it's also a space where you typically need kind of cash to get entry, which probably is one of the things that really affects the diversity issues. But as I started to mention, it felt like we really needed to influence the allocations of capital to start seeing solutions accelerate that we deeply believe in these areas, especially around this dynamic of cities, because a lot of people don't like to think about urban investments because it can get complicated. <laughs> I'm going to talk about that later. But we we were both mentoring and, and I can just talk about my journey too, like mentoring and advising a whole range of startups and that probably started at five hours a week six, seven years ago and started ramping up to 15 hours a week, <laughs> maybe a year ago and kept seeing four big areas of challenges. This is outside of a day job, right? Like the point on like hobbies. I feel like this was like my hobby. Last five years, like working in debt with startups, we're trying to sound like we solve really tough urban climate problem. And I think the four areas that kept coming up, which we've made really core to the fund are people struggling to navigate regulatory issues, even if you're selling to a business and not to a government. If you're trying to do something like on-site energy storage, right, you need to get approval from a fire department and a building commission and all sorts of other stuff. <laughs> you need to understand who to talk to and how to go about um, doing those issues and how to influence a city to make them. And second on operations, right, really knowing how to build your company right from the beginning, thinking about top-line revenue, growth to like operations, cost management. What does that look like? Third is getting your first customers, right? So... How do I connect with the right real estate developer who's excited to implement this or infrastructure player or mobility player and others? And so making a lot of connections there. And then fourth area is what I'll call the capital stack, but then explain, which is basically what are the different sources and uses of capital that you're using in your business? This fourth area is the one that I get most excited about, but is literally the least, the topic lowest on the list. I guess you talk about it like a family Thanksgiving or holiday celebration. <laughs> Because it's something that's really important for all companies and especially startups who are earlier on and especially within climate is that there's a lot of free money in climate right now, a lot of grants to help startups pay for early R&D. And so they can build out early stages of their product. So you say maybe an alpha stage or something like that and start testing it with customers and really getting a lot of that iterative feedback. And then when they actually have a, a product in place, so maybe a you know, beta product, something commercially available. There's a lot of great debt options that are non-dilutive. And when someone in a finance seat says non-dilutive, it means that when a startup takes equity, it's shares of the company, right? So make the startup founders will start up with a hundred percent of shares. And then based on each of their rounds, like if they do a $10 million post money round in, in venture speak, and they took in $2 million, that means that now outside investors own 20% of the company and the founders and, and team, et cetera, own 80. If they did that and they took in $5 million of investment for the post money was 10, then they've lost half the company, right? And But if you take in debt, it means that you don't lose your kind of share of the company. Instead, you're using a different vehicle to finance something. For example, a lot of startups, and one thing that we really coach on is looking at things like revenue-based debt. So maybe you're selling a big contract and you have dollars coming in the door six months from now or nine months from now. You can actually get a really simple loan to pay for that over the short term with pretty acceptable terms. 
if you're selling something that has a physical product, you know, a hardware product, you can get something called asset-based financing, right? So like fund the like unit level kind of sale, like production and then sale, like gap between the production and sale of that asset. And something that's also really exciting is given the rise of the IRA and other measures within the U.S., there's a lot of project finance that's now available much earlier stage for startups too. And so if you're looking to do a much larger scale project, green banks, there's a program called GGRF that's being done and allocated as part of the IRA that's putting a lot of money much earlier stage. And one of the things that's exciting about all of this stuff that, you know, and it's nuances sounds a little bit boring, but it's big picture is really exciting is like this $3 trillion that are sitting on the sideline commanded by financial players today. Those are sitting on the sideline because companies weren't built with the right kind of sources of capital. And so they died at some point in their journey, right? So it's, they never took in anything besides equity and they got to a series B and they needed to get project finance. And those players are like, hey, you have no credit history. We can't fund you because they're going out to the big banks and others based on the size of money that they needed. Or the founders diluted themselves out of their ownership stakes by, say, like a series A investment stage and they're they reasonably were like, why are we going to continue eating microwave ramen <laughs> you know, if there's the, I'm not owning the company or decision-making gets challenging? And so it's really important to like how you manage and grow the company over time. Yeah, that's super informative. You're, you formed a venture fund that's investing in companies that like in a lot of ways are doing a public good. But when a company takes on venture funding, it generally needs to be a really high growth company. What are the kind of companies that are the right fit for Street Life Ventures investment. Yeah. And maybe I'll talk about them related to this, thinking about these financing options, both for companies that have a hardware aspect and then ones that have a software aspect, but it makes it a lot easier for their customers. Maybe we'll start with the software the software aspect, because one of the things that we were talking about before we started the podcast was thinking about really difficult to decarbonize spaces like the real estate industry, where people need to see a really short return cycle that they're definitively sharing, like saving money or increasing value in the assets and also decarbonizing. That's great, but it's not usually the primary objective. And so there's one platform called Cadence 1.5. They're an early stage startup and they essentially have a three-sided marketplace. So they have financial players on the platform. They have providers of different kinds of decarbonization for multifamily residential buildings. That could be anything from a heat pump to duct sealant to all sorts of stuff. And then they have installers who actually go out and do the work. And so having those financial players on the platform means that when they go to a multifamily real estate, you know, company, and when I say multifamily, it could be someone that owns like a 30 unit apartment building, or it could be a related, <laughs> right? They work with like everyone between that. For those companies, the, the Inflation Reduction Act has given a lot of really great benefits, but they're all in the form of tax credits. And typically when you get a tax credit, you have to pay for everything up front and then you get paid back at some point in the future. But that always makes everyone nervous. <laughs> but what Cadence does, which I really like, is they have all these financial players on our platform who convert that tax credit into what's called tax equity holdings at these banks and financial institutions, because then they can use them on their own balance sheets. And so it's a really nice way of saying rather than paying 100% for something, say it's $1,000, just making up a number, someone that's coming on is paying $200 up front. And it means that they're getting paid back in the cost savings in, say, two years rather than, say, six years or seven years for the particular type of decarbonization technology. And they sell to the capital side of this is they sell to real estate owners, right? And they sell really big contracts. And so they themselves have a kind of a revolving debt 
revenue-based structure too in place. So they've taken equity money, but they've also taken some of this debt money. On the hardware side, there's another company to call out called GoPower EV. They work with basically, again, also multifamily. So I'll just stick on the multifamily theme. They work with folks who are looking to install EV chargers for multifamily residentials because you know, not having the right infrastructure has been a big blocker to even people making that ice to electric transformation. And one of the big barriers has been that these big multifamily buildings will install basically two fast chargers, which are expensive, they're like $40,000 each. And then you typically have to upgrade the building's electricity system to be able to pull more power, which is a whole complicated process with utilities <laughs> um, and, ex- and really expensive. And what GoPower does is they install a lightweight piece of hardware at every single parking space within the multifamily residential building. And so everyone can charge when they want to which prevents the fights, as you can imagine, over the two fast chargers. But then they have a software layer that helps people say, schedule, I'm going to drive tonight and it's going to be 10 miles. I need to drive tomorrow morning and it's going to be 40 miles around this time and develops a queuing system. And so the vehicles are being charged according to that queuing system, which means that you save costs, right? Because you're not charging at peak energy prices and like you're charging when other electrical draw isn't happening on the building's electrical system. And so they use a really great back to the capital stack. They've gotten great grants. And so they've deployed to tons of affordable housing units because of the way that the IRA is structured right now. They have a great revolving kind of debt structure as well to pay for that installation of the hardware. And so that people are only paying for that 20% install of the hardware upfront. And lots of other really interesting things that just make it a lot easier and remove a lot of the barriers for people to install this kind of decarbonization technology. And so I, I just think that bringing that all together is really important because it not only is important for the company, but it's important for the end buyer of the technology too. Wow, that's super interesting. Yeah. And I can see how both of those companies would have like really huge potential markets. Yeah. And it's like back to the mission side, buildings are two biggest drivers of emissions globally are buildings and mobility in dense city. We've talked about mobility a bit in dense cities. That can sometimes be upwards of 70%, depending on how dense the city is. I think New York is 70%, so maybe we're at the max, <laughs> right? And so decarbonizing these older buildings is really important and critical to meeting any of our goals. And so making it the easiest path possible is a critical yeah. part of doing that. I guess one question I had was, so you had advised startups prior. So how different was it to start a venture fund? Was it you had already been familiar with the space. Was it really different? Is anything that you were really learning net new while doing this? Or anything like even something mundane that you're like, I didn't know I would have to do this to create this venture fund? Yeah. Yeah. A big part of starting a venture fund is raising capital for the venture fund <laughs> um, and going out and fundraising. And so I think that the approach to that and building a network of folks that invest in venture funds, who folks that I, I guess to give the high level version for folks who are interested in this really depending on the size of venture fund that you're raising is the type of what's called limited partner who might invest in you and we're the size of fund that we're raising a lot of the folks that we talk to are high net worth individuals family offices some fund of funds that are interested in climate or they're interested in diverse managers or institutional players that are interested in diverse managers and have specific allocations for them. But there's a whole range of very big kind of institutional pension funds and big foundations investing in their endowments that if you're a very large fund, those are the some of the people that you talk to for 
your limited partner base. And so I think we, to this broad, a huge range of skill sets of actually helping companies succeed at those earliest stages and really making sure that they're set up for success and accelerating their success, being really strong on all of the like financial side of all of that and diligence side of that. But the thing that we didn't bring to the table was like having a Rolodex of like hyper wealthy people to call. And so one of the things that we focus on is really bringing in limited partners that are aligned to our thesis and number of them have real estate assets or infrastructure assets that they themselves are looking to decarbonize mm. and have raised their hand to be deployment partners, which is a big kind of part of what we bring to the table already with just like your life's work at Relidex. <laughs> Don't have a lot of like folks that are ultra high net worth, <laughs> but do have a lot of folks that, you know, own buildings or think about mobility systems in a particular way or thinking about energy, right? Mm-hmm. And having folks that have invested in you and say have assets that they want to work on is a really great opportunity for startups to do like early partnerships and early deployments as they're iterating on early product. Yeah, I love how you blended what you you have so much life experience in terms of this like content, but this like getting the fun, this I'm sure like this developing the sales pitch and like feeling but still tying it back to the mission is like very cool that you've been able to like thread the needle across all those pieces. Yeah. And a big shout out. We've been in two programs that have been really great. One is called Recast Capital and one's called Catalyze. And both of them are focused on diverse emerging managers within venture. And both have come with funding for us. So they're not programs that we have to pay for. <laughs> the Recast program had a hundred thousand dollars grant from Melinda Gates and her Pivotal Ventures group, which is great because you have to pay for a bunch of things to start a fund like legal expenses you can imagine would be very high mm-hmm. they are just like the lawyers always have to get paid <laughs> always always yeah they're very expensive per hour <laughs> and then catalyze as well also came with a grant and that's funded through the Sorensen foundation and i think that there is a movement to and they've been really helpful in thinking about kind of development of relationships so some of these lps would like to invest in diverse emerging managers too and so I think that there are a lot of people looking to change this industry for the better, which is an exciting moment. Be part of, there's a great cohort of other fund managers who are part of these programs. Across my career, I would say peers and especially peer women have been like the fundamental <laughs> driver benefit to my career. And I, I found the thing to be in funds and your peer might not be in your company, but it's someone else who's building another fund and some level of maturity or has done there may be one ahead in one area you're maybe ahead in another and you can very know when you're thinking about a company that you might want to make an invest in what are the things you're looking for in that company are you starting with the market and then working your way to the company or are you starting with say the founders and seeing what's working there what are red flags and green flags you're looking out for yeah i think your intuition is really strong we have a really clear diligence process that we follow and framework that we use for assessing folks that come in. That first step though of who are we looking at is really important to us <laughs> because we follow, we are two female fund managers starting a fund <laughs> and we follow the data that actually diverse startup founders and lead to better returns and all sorts of other things. <laughs> and so we want to make sure that we have a really diverse pipeline of startups coming to us. And we both do that through being known for them, the ecosystem. We have a quarterly demo night series that we do with Amazon and NYU's Feature Labs that's focused on bringing in diverse founders to demo. We have a climate leadership series in partnership with BCG and, and a number of other areas that we think about 
we run New York Climate Tech, which is a kind of community platform focused on events related to climate in New York City. It has about 6,000 subscribers and really focus on bringing as many people into that through diverse partners. And so think a lot about how we both bring in startups know about us and be sharing what they're doing with us, but making sure that's diverse. And everyone comes through a diligence form that we have that's pretty simple to fill out, but just helps us understand and come prepared for conversations if they're a great fit. And so from that first look at what someone has filled out and their deck and things like that to the last stage, we're looking at a couple of key areas and, and super high level. It's a does it matter as in what's the big pain point that's being experienced? Is that truly felt by a customer? How do we know they have to want to solve it? <laughs> it can't be like a nice to have and has to be a must to have. There's the size of the market. And for us, the climate impact is critical. And so, you know, that's almost you have to align to the, those categories under does it matter for us to go forward and continue assessing. And so the second part of that framework is, can they do it? Who is the founding team? What are some of the unique insights that they're bringing to the table about this space? Is there something interesting about the product founder fit and founder market fit that has a founder worked in this space before? Are they bringing something that's really unique to it? Something that can sometimes feel hard to describe, but does someone, is someone a good storyteller, right? Like you're an early stage founder, you have to sell to investors, you're selling to customers, you have to hire great people. And so how does What's the approach to that in the conversation? And then the last part is, can it scale? And I use a framework there that I've used in many other parts of my career um, and found to be really helpful, which is a uh, feasibility, desirability, and viability framework. So feasibility, like what's core product technical, scientific risk, what does that look like? Desirability, what has the work been done to understand that customer? So things like ethnographic research, what was the early customer testing with the product? What did you learn? What did you change? And then what does your pipeline look like, right? When you're going out and talking to customers and how mature is that? Because it helps get back to that earlier question of, is it really a pain point? Is it really a problem for that customer set? And then that third area is viability. So what's the business model? How does it grow and scale? What are the unit economics and all of those pieces? And so that's a really consistent approach that we take. And as you can imagine, you can understand some of that from a deck and a set of materials and, and filling out all of additional aspects. But then if it is feels it might hit on hits on our thesis area, it feels like it's drawn in these areas. We set up a first call, a later series of calls, send questions in advance to each of those, are really digging into a lot of the specifics and details, looking at models, building our own model of what we think something looks like throughout the process. And Lots of stages of that diligence process, but that's that's a highlight. And things that we get really excited about is when someone deeply knows their customer, talks their customer on the time, right? Knows what it's going to take them to purchase, like what their concerns are, right? I think to the example that we talked about earlier, if someone was coming in and talking about selling into the real estate industry, and the only thing that they're talking about is climate benefit, and they're not talking about how someone who owns a building reduces costs, increases value to residents, like all these other areas, it, it reflects that they don't know the customer. That capital conversation that we discussed earlier, is someone starting to think already? Are they coachable on stuff like sources and uses of capital? How do you think about that? And that team experience are just like a couple things to call out. And then red flags could be um, anything related to all those areas, but especially if someone's not honestly portraying where they're at today because we'll be like okay let's take a look at a demo <laughs> and let, let's go through 
you know, where the product is at. And if someone is saying, oh, it's so mature and we're selling these multi-billion dollar contracts, <laughs> you're like, wait a second, but I reefed again here. <laughs> and that turns out not to be true. That's a really big red flag, I think, for anyone, right? We think about our life experience, but especially for an investor. So lots of other things to call out, but I think at a high level, those are a couple of things that are really helpful. Thank you so much for going through all that. That was really interesting to think about all the due diligence steps that go into it. Yeah, that's something that I've been like, I got to see a little bit in this class with Glenn Oaken, but I, it's cool to see how you think about it in the real world versus in a class setting. Yeah. And for the entrepreneurs who are listening as part of the diligence process, especially if someone is a lead investor, people are calling references, right? And getting to know you a little bit from your past kind of work history. They're calling early customers. They're calling potential customers to get a read. <laughs> so there's a lot that kind of goes on outside of just the relationship between the investor and the entrepreneur themselves. You're calling experts in the space who might know this really well, because some of these things requiring companies that we invest in all sell the businesses, government and regulatory things are a going concern, <laughs> right, about how you navigate them. And so we bring a lot of experience on that topic, but there might be areas where we're calling a policy expert or we're calling someone on the business model side who's executed this exact business model, but in a really different environment. And how did that work? And so there's there's a lot to think about in terms of how that all comes together to try to make a company successful. And at the end of the day, it's a, you know, it's a it's an exciting bet, <laughs> right, with the founder and then ongoing support of the work that they're that you're doing post investment. That is really hopeful. Also the customer piece. I feel like in business school it's hammered that you should talk to your customers. Having done like design, like the interview, informational interviews with potential customers, it's so difficult to figure out what to ask and how to ask it. And so it's so much more complicated than to go talk to your customer. And I think I've gotten a big appreciation about how to talk to potential customers or current customers to really see if they're going to find yeah. something or want something. Totally. Because you can imagine if I ask a question of, so tell me how you first got to understand that this was like a big pain point for your customer. If you have one line that you're saying versus you just like, I first noticed this happening here. Then I realized that I really wanted to be curious and explore and understand how big this pain point was. Here's how I set up my ethnographic research to get to that. From those discussions, I identified that, you know, actually my early thought was a little bit off and came to a better understanding an early MVP went out and tested that. There's just like a very different depth to that kind of discussion and dialogue that can happen when someone is deep into understanding that that customer type and mm-hmm. point. It has been a really great conversation. I've learned so much about just thinking about how Stern has influenced you and also like things that I can still take from Stern in my last semester, like things I should take advantage of and I candidly had very little like context about venture funds prior. And so it's really helpful to hear from you, Laura. No, happy to. And I think I mentioned this at the beginning, but Stern was such a big pivot point for me <laughs> and a really awesome chance to dig deeper, take that interest in cities, move down Maslow's hierarchy of needs, <laughs> take my functional skill set and really expand and broaden that and really value and feel like Stern did a great job of setting me up for doing even more pivots later on in my career too, right? From consulting to running a PL at City Bike to now starting a venture fund and sidewalk labs and everything in between. That's a fantastic place to end and thinking about all the tools that Stern can give its students and a way to pivot and equip themselves to their future careers. 
Thank you so much, Laura, for being part of this podcast episode. We both learned so much. Uh, I'm excited to see where Streetlight Ventures goes. <laughs>